here's your guest host, Richard Serrett. Hey, welcome back. Brian Owens and his version of Johnny Cash's Wholesome Prison from an album called The Soul of Cash. Now, the anniversary of 9-11 has come and gone, but I think it behooves us. That's an old expression my grandmother used to use, behooves. Uh, It behooves us uh, to keep it in our minds the whole year round, and it's just as important to talk about it on September 11th, but also on March 22nd and June 15th, or September 16th, as the case may be. These are the opening lines from 9-11 Whistleblowers by James Corbett. But someone would have talked the self-styled skeptics who believe the government's official conspiracy theory of 9-11. But there's a problem with this logically fallacious non-argument. Someone did talk. In fact, numerous people have come out to blow the whistle on the events of September 11, 2001, and the cover-up that surrounds those events. These are the stories of the 9-11 whistleblowers, and we'll discuss some of those when James Corbett joins us shortly on Coast to Coast AM. James Corbett edits, writes, and produces The Corbett Report, an outlet for independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics. He's written, recorded, and edited thousands of hours of audio and video media for his website, including a podcast and several regular online video series. He's the lead editor uh, editorial writer for the International Forecaster, the e-newsletter created by the late Bob Chapman. His work has been carried online by a wide variety of websites, and his videos have garnered over 50, uh, let me see, that's 50 million views, my word, 50 million views on YouTube alone. James Corbett, welcome to Coast to Coast AM. How are you? I'm doing very well, Richard. Thank you for having me on the program. My pleasure. Uh, before we get to um, uh, 9-11 whistleblowers, uh, let me just get your take on some uh, stories that have been covered in the alternative media, but not so uh, in the mainstream, as far as I know, and perhaps that's not surprising. And the first one um, was they're saying that, uh, or at least some online sources are saying that for the first time ever, an elected body in the United States is stating that it is beyond any doubt that explosives, not plane impacts and fires alone, destroyed the three World Trade Center towers on September 11, 2001. Commissioners from the Franklin Square and Munson Fire District, located near Queens, New York, unanimously passed an historic resolution July 24th that calls for a new investigation into all aspects of 9-11, which cites, quote, overwhelming evidence, end quote, that explosives were planted in all three towers prior to 9-11. Your your thoughts, uh, is that in fact true as far as you know? This is the first time ever an elected body has passed such a resolution? It is, in fact, true. And, in fact, we don't have to speculate about this. There is actually video of the meeting in which they passed that resolution, saying, claiming that the existence of overwhelming evidence that pre-planted explosives caused the destruction of the three World Trade Center buildings was put on the record, was voted uh, unanimously by the five fire commissioners, as you say, of the Franklin Square and Munson Fire District, which uh, oversees a volunteer fire department um, serving a hamlet just of 30,000 just outside of Queens, New York. And as you say, this is the first legislative body in the United States to officially support a new investigation into the events on 9-11. A very significant development, one that cannot be contested or disputed. As I say, there is video evidence. You can go watch the actual meeting on YouTube where they passed that resolution. Uh, Something that you would suspect would be worthy of a little bit of news coverage. 
But unfortunately, you would be wrong in that, or at least if you are a uh, editor of one of the mainstream news networks, you would be wrong because it has not been covered, as far as I know, by any of the mainstream news networks. Uh, it is being exclusively reported by online alternative outlets, as some of the other remarkable developments that have taken place uh, with regards to 9-11 Truth in the past year, which you will only, unfortunately, find online through independent outlets not being reported by uh, CNN or any of the other cable networks. We should point out Franklin Square and Munson Fire District. They lost several firefighters on 9-11, and as subsequently, uh, a number of them have taken ill, as many you know, first responders have, who uh, were in the ground zero uh, vicinity because of you know, the, the, the toxic um, air and so forth, asbestos and, and, and different things. The other story uh, comes out of the University of Alaska Fairbanks. And this was uh, September 3rd, the long-awaited release of the groundbreaking Building 7 study, a structural re-evaluation of the collapse of World Trade Center 7. Uh, the four-year study conducted by Dr. Leroy Halsey, Ph.D., and two other researchers is a finite element analysis that uses computer modeling based on the original blueprints for the building. And the executive summary of the study states, quote, Fires could not have caused weakening or displacement of structural members capable of initiating any of the hypothetical local failures alleged to have triggered the total collapse of the building, nor could any local failures, even if they had occurred, have triggered a sequence of failures that would have resulted in the observed total collapse. Your, have you had a chance to look at the study, or what are your thoughts? I certainly have had a chance to look at it myself, although I obviously am not an engineer myself, so I am not able to comment deeply on the uh, the actual findings of the study. But I, I can say that that is available up on the Institute of Northern Engineering website at uaf.edu. It's ine.uaf.edu slash WTC7. And you can go and download their final draft report for yourself, which, as you say, the principal conclusion of their study is that fire did not caused the collapse of World Trade Center Building 7 on 9-11. And I'm sure most of your audience is well-informed about World Trade Center 7, but unfortunately, a vast majority of the American public still does not realize that three buildings fell on the day of 9-11. Not the Twin Towers, but the Twin Towers and World Trade Center Building 7, which, of course, was not hit by an airplane. The official conclusion by the, uh, the official investigating body, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, a.k.a. NIST, which took them seven years, by the way, to come to this conclusion, but they eventually concluded that this was a progressive collapse caused by fire, uh, interior office fires. That has been disproven, or at least this report claims to disprove that uh, with their own models and studies, a finite element analysis, as you say. And uh, that's pretty significant. Um, and one of the significant things about this is, as I say, I'm not an engineer or an architect myself, I can't really comment deeply on this, but if there are people in the audience who are engineers and architects and are interested in this. They sure, certainly should go to that page because what they did on September 3rd, 2019, Dr. Leroy Holsey and his team, they released the final draft report of their study coming to this conclusion that it was not fire that caused the collapse of World Trade Center Building 7. But that final draft report is open for public comment um, uh, for, I believe, the next two months that is open for public comment, and it is also being peer-reviewed by various uh, architects and engineers. So th this is uh, a work still in progress, but it is this is the final draft report of the team. It, it represents, I believe, four years of study and uh, is quite 
quite thorough in, in terms of uh, the, the approach they took. And their final uh, model that they, they were able to come up with it looks a lot more like the reality of the, the collapse of World Trade Center 7 than uh, what the NIST model looked like. If anyone ever saw that, uh, if they didn't, they should look it up on YouTube, the, uh, the NIST presentation where they, they present their computer model of how they simulated the collapse of World Trade Center 7. And you have to see it to disbelieve it. It, it absolutely is self-refuting. It's, it's almost a joke the way that they, they modeled that collapse. Well, uh, this Leroy Holsey team uh, at the uh, Institute of Northern Engineering has done a much better job. Uh, And finally, uh, now this goes back uh, a spell. I think this happened in March of this year, but again, uh, no no news coverage whatsoever. A joint federal lawsuit was launched against the FBI by uh, architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth and the lawyers committee of that group, the lawyers committee, and family members of 9-11 victims. It contends the agency has failed to perform a congressionally mandated assessment of 9-11 evidence, known to it that it was not considered by the 9-11 Commission. And then the Lawyers Committee, uh, again, for 9-11 Inquiry, have submitted to Jeffrey Berman, this is the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, a petition containing, supposedly, powerful evidence that contradicts the official 9-11 story. And Berman, again, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, has agreed to comply with the law, requiring him to impanel a special grand jury to examine this evidence, although he, uh, he hasn't followed through uh, with this as yet, but the Lawyers Committee continues to apply pressure. So, impaneling a grand jury on 9-11, what are your, how significant is that? Well, again, this is another remarkable development in 9-11 Truth that's only taken place in the past year, year and a half, and yet still... Most of the public is completely unaware of it because it is not being reported. But as you say, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, which does include uh, several attorneys, uh, people who uh, have absolute relevant material experience in this field, uh, did file in April 2018. They did file a petition with the U.S. attorney in Manhattan to demand that he does present evidence of this unprosecuted federal crime at the World Trade Center, which is what it is, if the evidence of uh, explosives used to take down the buildings does hold, then it is essentially a federal crime that has not been prosecuted. And uh, as a result of that petition, uh, the U.S. attorney would be forced to to uh, pass that information to a special grand jury. And in fact, there is an update to that, because in November of last year, the U.S. attorney did notify the Lawyers Committee in writing that he would comply with the provisions of the U.S. Code that require him to relay the report to a special grand jury. Unfortunately, there's no, there's no uh, mechanism uh, for feedback to be given to the, the filers of that petition about the status of that uh, petition and, and what's, what's the grand jury that's been convened and what it's doing. So there's really, it's kind of a, a legal black hole where we don't know what's going on behind the curtain. But at any rate, they have confirmed that they are complying with the law, which can only mean that this information has been transmitted to a special grand jury, and presumably the grand jury investigation is ongoing. So again, an incredible development that you would think people would be interested in, uh, and I think people probably are interested in, but for some reason... Uh, a lot of the mainstream media doesn't seem interested in covering that topic. Um, a lot or none. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. We, we think that whether or not you, you, know, you embrace the official version of events or not, that these are newsworthy stories, and someone with a, just a modicum of intellectual curiosity you know, would be interested in covering these stories. 
That's exactly right. And, th- and that's, I think, the way that the public perception of the journalistic profession and how it operates is framed, because we're always told, well, if there was a if there was a big, juicy story like this, even if it isn't even if it isn't true, even if the official story is is 100 percent true and all of these claims are are off the wall, there'd be someone out there who'd be willing to take them on and, and dig through them and, lo- and examine them and, and bring this information to the public uh, because it would be interesting and newsworthy. But as as we've noted, there there's absolutely no coverage of any of these events taking place, which can only speak to the fact that our perception of the journalistic profession and the way it operates must be wrong to some key extent. And uh, again, I'm sure listeners of this program don't need to, a great deal of elaboration of this, but obviously things that go outside, too far outside of the norm, or things that are not, uh, are, are verboten by intelligence agencies, officials, government uh, writ, are obviously going to to be special subjects that will be shoved to the side for as long as possible. And sometimes significant developments occur, and some of that truth does come out, even through official channels. I mean, we saw the church committee hearings, for example, in the 1970s, where the CIA's family jewels and a number of their secret programs were revealed, like MKUltra and things like that. Uh, So sometimes that does actually happen, and that's why I think it is good that there are things like the Lawyers Committee pressing for a special grand jury or something else to try to uh, pry some of that information out of the government's uh, coffers. But at any rate, we can see wh- that it's demonstrable that the mainstream media is not going to be covering this uh, with the type of diligence that we would expect them to uh, if this was a if the journalistic profession really operated the way that they say that it does. Let's talk about 9-11 whistleblowers. Uh, first of all, when did this come out? When did you complete this documentary? So uh, it, it uh, basically started rolling out on my site, I believe, uh, the 7th of September and finished on the 11th, or was it the 6th? Uh, anyway, six consecutive days. And uh, the, it's essentially a, a single feature-length documentary, but I split it into six parts representing the six different 9-11 whistleblowers that I present to the audience, which of course is not meant to be an exhaustive list. I think there are more people that one could add to such a list, but this is just an example of how we could provide a retort to those people who say, oh, well, 9-11 conspiracy, oh, that couldn't happen. Someone would have talked. Well, no, as as I explicitly stated at the beginning, and as you read so so competently there, I wish you were available for voiceover work. Uh, that, would, that would make my, my documentaries that much more effective. But anyway, uh, as I say at the beginning, this is something of a retort to that uh, fallacious non-argument that someone would have talked. Well, actually, many people have talked, but as, exactly as with regards to these new 9-11 truth developments, they're not going to report on them in the mainstream media. Well, let's let's tar- talk about uh, Kevin Ryan, uh, who was the site manager at Environmental Health Laboratories in South Bend, Indiana. This was a subsidiary of Underwriters Laboratories, a global safety consulting and certification corporation. Uh, well, you tell me a little bit more about, uh, first of all, about UL, Underwriters Laboratories, and then we'll talk about what Kevin Ryan discovered. Right. So Underwriters Laboratory is a, is a gigantic uh, company that does safety consulting uh, and, and corporation uh, certification. So it does things like work with governments uh, for to develop fire safety ratings uh, that can be used as standards and also to provide the tests of various components, um, like, for example, structural steel. Uh, to make sure that they conform to those standards. And that's precisely the case that pertained with regard to New York City building codes and how UL does provide fire resistance ratings for structural steel components. 
of buildings that are built in New York City um, and, and tests for those uh, structural steel components as well. So it was in that regard that this ties into 9-11, because as you say, Kevin Ryan was working uh, in 2001 uh, as the site manager at Environmental Health Laboratories in Indiana, which at the time was a subsidiary of Underwriters Laboratory. And so it was that just after 9-11, uh, Loring Knobloch, who was then the CEO, the chief executive officer of Underwriters Laboratory, was on a visit to Ryan's lab at EHL in, in, in Indiana, and he gave a speech uh, to the workers there where he actually claimed at that time that UL, Underwriters Laboratory, had certified the steel in the World Trade Center buildings, um, which Kevin Ryan at that time thought uh, didn't think much of that statement. Well, yes, okay, UL does uh, provide fire resistance ratings and for the New York City building code. So it, it made sense that they would do something like certify the steel in the World Trade Center buildings. But then... As things started to go along and as the investigation into how the Twin Towers collapsed began to proceed, Kevin Ryan started to notice that the story was getting a little bit murkier. For example, uh, UL was now officially denying that they had certified the steel in the World Trade Center, which remains their position. Essentially, they're saying that, no, no, we, we, we actually certified specific steel components in the structure of the, the, the towers, not the steel itself and, and other such uh, semantic sleights of hand. Uh, but more significantly, uh, Underwriters Laboratory actually began to play a role in the investigation into the Twin Towers collapse. And specifically, uh, they did do some tests of some mock-ups of the, some of the steel assemblies, um, basically trying to find whether or not the then um, current theory of the Twin Towers collapse was true or false. And that theory at that time was the pancake collapse theory, essentially that the fire at, at the point of impact uh, was enough to weaken the steel so that the, uh, the, the beams would sag and then eventually uh, fail. And at that point, the floors above the point of impact would collapse on the floors below, basically crushing the entire building structure down. And that's how the buildings collapsed. That was, at that time, that was the theory that they were working on. Um, but uh, Underwriters Laboratory participated in some tests of some steel assemblies and found not only that there was not enough sagging to cause that kind of failure, in fact, there was barely any sagging of any sort whatsoever. Even when the uh, the steel assemblies were uh, subjected to fire temperatures that were much greater than what NIST was asserting actually took place in the Twin Towers. So they were they were taking the steel and putting uh, even hotter fire to it, and it was sagging even less than what they ha- uh, had said would have pertained in the in the Twin Towers themselves. And Kevin Ryan started right, to think. In one case, I believe. In one case, I believe. Excuse the interruption, but this is, to me was fascinating. Uh, in one case, they tested it without any fire protection at all. That's correct, because that is one of the things that, uh, that has been suggested. Oh, the, the, the impact of the planes knocked off the fire protection in that area, so there was no fire protection, so these were completely exposed steel. And therefore, it would have... Well, actually, even the UL's own uh, fire rating standards uh, would have certified such steel for, I believe, three and a half hours of completely... Um, bare steel, uh, being able to, to withstand three and a half hours of fire. Uh, the first tower uh, fell in 56 minutes, and uh, the second in, I think, one, 102 minutes, uh, which obviously is significantly less than three and a half hours. So Kevin Ryan was looking at the, these, these results of Underwriters Laboratory's own tests uh, that showed that NIST's theory was not correct, and saying, well, something clearly does not add up here. And the strangest part was that Underwriters Laboratory didn't seem to be 
trying to trumpet these tests or say, look, you know, there's something, there's something wrong with your theory, because whatever one makes of what really happened and what was going on there, at the very least, you think Underwriters Laboratory would have an institutional corporate uh, uh, imperative to say, well, no, look, we we certified this. It was James. I got to jump in here. Pardon the interruption. We're going to take a quick time out. We'll come back and continue to discuss 9-11 whistleblowers. Here are, here's Desmond Decker, Israelites, taking us into the break on Coast to Coast. And we are back with uh, James Corbett from the Corbett Report, 9-11 whistleblowers. James, we were talking about Kevin Ryan, who was the site manager for a subsidiary of Underwriters Laboratories, and uh, they did the, I guess, the safety consultant consulting uh, and the certification of the steel used in the uh, the World Trade Center towers. Although they sort of backed away from that and said they didn't. Although, as is pointed out, I think uh, Kevin Ryan or you point out in the documentary that another member of uh, UL, I think it was a Tom Chapin, wrote an editorial to one of the New York newspapers stating that they had, in fact, done the certification on the steel at the, uh, the World Trade Center Towers, correct? Yes, that is correct. And, in fact, I do have that, uh, that op-ed linked up in the show notes, the transcript for this documentary, which we should mention is at corporatereport.com slash 911 whistleblowers. It has the complete transcript of the documentary with hyperlinks to every single thing that I'm talking about here, including that op-ed that you're talking about from the New York Times 2002. So did... Uh, underwriters laboratories did they work with the the structural engineer John Skilling who designed the towers so John Skilling as you say did design the towers and he actually in 1993 which was five years before his death he died shortly before 9-11 so he couldn't comment on the 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 events of 9-11 themselves but he did say in 93 that even if a jet tower, a jet plane was to crash into the towers, the ensuing fires would not build, build, bring down the building. He said the building structure would still be there. So that's that's pretty important. Um, regarding whether he worked with, uh, sorry, who again? Uh, whether John Skilling uh, was consulting with, or whether um, Underwriters Laboratories were consulting with John Skilling. During the construction. Right, I see. As far as I know, they did not. Uh, they did not consult with John Skilling directly, but that, that may be the case. I, I don't have that information. So the upshot here is that uh, under the underwriters supposedly did this certification. They said they did some testing, and they said that those columns and floors, uh, even with, with far greater temperatures, and I think the jet fuel burned at, well, 250 degrees Celsius, uh, for a short period of time, but they tested it and they said those columns under those, those conditions should have uh, should have stood up for three and a half hours. The floor is something like two hours, and yet, as as you say, there was total failure, collapse, uh, fifty six minutes for one and, and an hour and two minutes for the other, and yet um, UL was not sort of defending its, its record uh, with, with NIST. That's right. And that's that's kind of the perplexing part that had Kevin Ryan a, a little bit uh, confused, because you would think that Underwriters Laboratory w- would want to defend their work and their certification and their findings, but it seemed that they were going quiet. So uh, Kevin Ryan all this time was corresponding with Tom Chapin, who was the head of the, the fire uh, department at UL at that time. 
And uh, he was saying, what's going on? Why isn't NIST, uh, why aren't we talking about this? Why aren't we corresponding with NIST? And they, they said, don't worry, just wait for the report, wait for the report. Eventually, uh, a preliminary NIST report was issued about the Twin Towers collapse that did include the results of those uh, underwriters laboratory tests, but that still was trying to forward some, some version of pancake collapse theory. Uh, so uh, eventually, when Kevin Ryan realized that there, there was not going to be any action on underwriters laboratories uh, part, he, d- he ended up writing directly to the head of the NIST, that's the National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, Twin Towers Investigation. The, the person who was heading that up was a person named Frank Gale. So he wrote a, a pretty important email uh, directly to Frank Gale about w- what he knew regarding Underwriters Laboratory, regarding the steel, regarding the, the tests. And essentially, he, he took it straight to Gale and said, something is wrong here. He says, uh, there's no question that the events of 9-11 are the emotional driving force behind the war on terror, and the issue of the Twin Towers collapse is at the crux of the story of 9-11. And my feeling is that your metallurgical tests, i.e. the ones that showed that the building should have still been there, are at the crux of the crux of the crux. Either you can make sense of what really happened to those buildings and communicate this quickly, or we all face the same destruction and despair that comes from global decisions based on disinformation and chatter. It was a very powerful email, and the reason we know what was in that email was because Ryan not only sent it directly to Frank Gale, he included uh, David Ray Griffin and Catherine Austin Fitz, who I'm sure many in your audience will know were prominent people in the 9-11 Truth movement, uh, including the uh, director of 9-11truth.org. And uh, so David Ray Griffin asked if he could post this email online, and Kevin Ryan thought about it and said, yes, yes, you may. And so it was posted online at the same time as it was sent to Frank Gale. Uh, obviously a pretty significant and important step for someone like Kevin Ryan, who knew that his job would be on the line as a result of this, because he's going public with what he knows. And of course, it was the very next week that he was called into the office and summarily fired, uh, because he had damaged Underwriters Laboratory's uh, relationship with NIST, essentially. And so uh, from that point on, Kevin Ryan has gone on to become a very prominent, very prolific 9-11 researcher, writing books and uh, joining the board, board of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, being the editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies. Uh, but a lot of people, even in the 9-11 Truth movement, don't know that this was really the origins of how Kevin Ryan got involved in all of this. Uh, Barry Jennings. At the time, 9-11 was the Deputy Director of Emergency Services for the New York City Housing Authority, which had offices in uh, Building 7. Uh, tell me about what he, what he saw, what he witnessed and experienced. So, according to his testimony, which is on record, it, it was recorded by Dylan Avery and Jason Burmis of the Loose Change documentary, which, of course, was one of the first, if not the first, really viral internet documentary about 9-11 and presenting some of the alternative evidence about what happened that day. Uh, in 2000, I believe 2000, oh, I, I, I think 2005, I'd have to double check what, what date the, uh, the recording uh, actually took place. But at that time, they had uh, Dylan and Jason had unearthed some footage of Barry Jennings on the news on 9-11, uh, in the afternoon, shortly after having been rescued from World Trade Center Building 7, which, as we were talking about at the top of the program, was the third building to come down that day. Uh, it was still standing at the time uh, in the afternoon when this, this interview was recorded. Essentially, Barry Jennings had been pulled 
out of Building 7, rescued by firefighters, uh, he was trapped in the building with another person, and they, he had been pulled out and was interviewed on the street. Dylan and Jason saw this and, and recognized the importance of, of that interview because, oh, here's someone who was trapped inside the building. We have to get a story. So they tracked him down. As you say, uh, he was the... Uh, it was working in the, the department, the, the housing authority, the New York City Housing Authority, as a deputy director of emergency services. And it was in that capacity that on 9-11, after the first plane hit the, t- uh, the North Tower at 846, he was called into the Office of Emergency Management, which was located in World Trade Center Building 7. So theoretically, all of the emergency managers, the, the mayor, the, the fire commissioner, the, the police chief, all of these people should have been in the Office of Emergency Management coordinating the response to the what was going on that day. But they weren't. Uh, that's, that's part of Barry Jennings' story. So he gets called in. Uh, he heads into the building, along with Corporation Counsel, New York City Corporation Counsel Michael Hess, who's a close associate of Giuliani uh, and has continued to be since 9-11. Uh, they both go into the building, and they both go up to the Office of Emergency Management, which is located, I think, on the 27th floor or so of the building. And they get in there and they find it is completely abandoned. Uh, cups of coffee still steaming, half-eaten sandwiches. People have clearly just left and left in a hurry. They don't know what's going on. They're calling their, their uh, people, their, their, their associates and other people. Uh, Jennings gets one of his supervisors on the phone who says, you're still in there? Get out of there. Get out of there now. Um, at that point, Michael Hess says, we got to get out of here. Here's the stairwell. They start running down the stairwell because the elevators weren't working at that point. And according to Jennings' testimony, he gets to the sixth floor. They're, they're running down, again, from the 20, I believe, 27th floor. And they're running down. They get to the sixth floor. And boom, there's a large explosion. And the landing underneath him gives way. He's hanging on. He has to climb back up. And they manage to get back to the eighth floor. They're trapped inside the building. He has to break out one of the windows to try to get any air. He says it's hot. It's smoky. He doesn't know what's going on. Uh, they manage to get some attention of some firefighters. The firefighters come to the window. Oh, we'll, you know, we'll get you out. We'll get you out. And then they all run away. And then they come back. And then they all run away again. And as Barry Jennings relates in that interview that he recorded with Dylan Avery and Jason Burmis, he says, they were running because the towers were falling. The first tower fell, they run away. The, first, the second tower fell, they run away. Uh, eventually they Which come back. Important. That's important in the chronology. It's that, exceptionally that's important. Yes, this is all important. But at the time, I'm sure he didn't even realize the significance of all of this at, at the time that it was going on. But yes, it's very important it's that he... On the eight- for like two hours. He's, he's in there for two hours. Exactly. And there's video footage of this. You can see the, uh, one of the, the, the news cameramen on the ground that day did take footage of, uh, of Michael Hess, the person that he was trapped in there with, uh, out looking out the window calling for help during that time, that time frame that Barry Jennings is talking about. So there's video evidence of this. Um, they were definitely in there. They were definitely pulled out by the firemen. And as he says, they, they ran away, they come back, they run away, they come back. Finally, they get him out. Uh, they, they have to lead him down through the lobby, which he says had been completely destroyed to the point he didn't know what it was. He said, where are we? He said, the, the fireman said, this is the lobby. He said, what are you talking about? It didn't, it, it was completely destroyed. He said it looked like King Kong had stamped through there. Uh, and then they were pulled out through a hole that he says the fireman must have made in the wall and they were taken taken out. Now, that's, as you say, that's extremely important because the way that the BBC and others have portrayed Barry Jennings' story is as they were coming down the stairwell, that 
what happened was not an explosion in the building. It was the collapse of the uh, the, the first tower that, that fell down and caused damage in World Trade Center Building 7. That was what they experienced. So they had to climb up back to the eighth floor and they were stuck inside. But Barry right, Jennings... Debris hitting, hitting the building from the collapsing tower. Exactly, but because it's right across we, the street. We know if, that, right. We know that those towers didn't collapse until he was up on the eighth floor because... That's why the firemen ran away and then came back twice. That's right. And he insisted on that point. Uh, Dylan and Jason, even if you watch the full uncut interview, it was 20-something minutes long. Uh, he insists on that point, and they stress it, and, and they get him to repeat it, that he uh, is insistent that it was the first tower falling was when the firemen ran away the first time. The second tower falling was when they ran away the second time. That means that that first explosion that took place below them blew them up uh, from the sixth up to the eighth floor. There was some explosion taking place that obviously affected the lobby and, and the, the innards of the building. And there's been a lot of talk about explosions in World Trade Center Building 7 and did they take place and what could they have been? And there's been talk about fuel oil tanks exploding and things like this. Various explanations have been preferred and then retracted by NIST over the years, the investigative body that was looking into this. But eventually, they, as I say, in 2008, they came out and said, no, it was just ordinary office fires. There was no explosions taking place in the building. Well, Barry Jennings directly contradicts that, which is an important piece of this puzzle. It's not the only piece, but it is an important piece of the World Trade Center 7 building uh, puzzle. And it's direct eyewitness testimony that he was very insistent about the chronology there. Although a lot of people, as you say, have tried to twist that chronology to make it seem like, no, it wasn't explosions, it was the buildings collapsing. But Barry Jennings was insistent, no, the buildings were still standing when they got to the eighth floor. So there was an explosion in Building 7 before the, the, uh, the two towers collapsed, uh, a, a, an explosion that, that managed to destroy the, uh, the lobby that he had just gone through several hours before. Uh, and also, I think they put the question to him about the possibility of, a, of an explosion of a boiler, perhaps. And he said, no, I'm an old boiler guy, and that makes sense, having worked for the housing authority. He said, I know a boiler explosion when I hear it. That's exactly right. He explicitly said it. Yes, uh, he explicitly said it was not a boiler. Uh, It would have been on one side of the building if it was a fuel oil tank. But he said that it wasn't. It was uh, directly beneath him. It was. uh, It affected the entire building. Uh, So he he was absolutely insistent on this story. Uh, The problem is that on it was in September of 2008, so around the seventh anniversary of 9/11, that NIST finally, after seven years of investigation, released their their model of how World Trade Center 7 fell, which, as we've just uh, talked about here, was just refuted by the University of Alaska Fairbanks. But uh, it was 2008 that NIST presented the official story of how Building 7 fell, and it was exactly that time that it was first reported in the media that Barry Jennings, the man who could potentially have directly contradicted what uh, NIST was saying, especially in the part of NIST's FAQ that they have online that says, oh, we examined the possibility of explosives, but we found no evidence of explosions in the building. Uh, He could have directly refuted that if he had been alive, but it was at exactly that time in September 2008 that it was first reported Barry Jennings passed away quietly a month ago. And at the time, there were no further details given about how Barry Jennings passed away or what the the details were. So it was uh, Dylan Avery, as I say, one of the creators of Loose Change, that documentary, the person who interviewed Barry Jennings, uh, decided to find out more about this story. Well, how did did he die? What happened? And 
According to his story, he paid a private investigator to find out more details. The private investigator ended up referring the matter to police, came back, gave the money back to Dylan, and said, don't ever contact me again. That was all he was able to find out. Now, I do know there is someone who was posting online who was claiming to be Barry Jennings' son, who said that his father, no, his father died of leukemia, uh, which his twin brother had died of 20 years before. There was nothing untoward about it. But at any rate, it just seems very interesting timing, literally just weeks before the release of NIST's long-awaited report um, that Barry Jennings was confused about. As he says in that, uh, that document, or that interview excerpt that I play in the podcast, he says... I have just one question. Why did World Trade Center 7 fall at all? Uh, there, I know what I heard. There were explosions in that building. James Corbett is with us, the Corbett Report and the documentary 9-11 Whistleblowers. How do people watch it again, James? Uh, if you go to CorbettReport.com, that's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com, it's right up there on the front page. There's a link to the transcript and everything. If you want to go directly there, it's CorbettReport.com slash 911 Whistleblowers, all one word. So I believe by my count there was about a half dozen, which includes the 9-11 Commission itself uh, in terms of the whistleblowers. But how, many, how, did, you, how did you winnow it down to this, uh, the six? Maybe how many did you start off with? Well, I had seen uh, various reporting on some of these things over the years, and I think the most uh, important one that everyone had seen, the 9-11 commissioners, of course, there were 12 commissioners, and uh, everyone had seen at the time that the 9-11 commission report was released and the chair were, chairman were going around talking about the commission, they came out and said that we believe we were set up to fail. And essentially, they were saying we were underfunded, we were understaffed, we were under t- too tight time deadline. There was no way that we could have gotten to the bottom of something as grand as 9-11 in in the space and time and and money that we had. Uh, So I think that was fairly well reported at the time, and I saw that that, uh, covered on a lot of mainstream news networks. But uh, I did I did know there was there was another commissioner here and another commissioner there. It wasn't until I sat down and started trying to itemize all of them that I found at least, and maybe there are more, but I have found six different 9-11 commissioners, including the chairs, Kane and Hamilton, who have some in some degree questioned the 9/11 commission and its final report themselves. We'll circle circle back to the commission a little bit later when we come back we're up against a break here at the top of the hour. We'll talk about uh, William Rodriguez uh, who is uh, uh, known as, you know, the the last man inside and uh, quite a hero. We'll talk about his remarkable story again which sort of corroborates this idea of explosives perhaps in the buildings, in the World Trade Center buildings, prior to those planes slamming into them. James Corbett, the director of 9-11 Whistleblowers. Now here is Bill Withers taking us into the break with Use Me on Coast to Coast AM. We are back with James Corbett of the Corbett Report. We're talking about uh, 9-11 whistleblowers. And James, let's talk about William Rodriguez, the janitor who was working at the World Trade Center towers when they were attacked. Let's talk about him. And this is one of the rare examples of one of these 9-11 whistleblowers that we're talking about tonight who has not been uh, taken off and, and, and basically hidden from mainstream public attention. In fact, he's 
been featured since pretty much the day of 9-11. In fact, on the day of 9-11, right through to today, he's often featured as one of the the survivors, one of the heroes of 9-11 because of what he did that day. In fact, as you say, he was not just a janitor at the World Trade Center, but he was one of the only people to hold a master key to the North Tower. And so as a result, he was... He not only helped people get out of the building, but then he ran back into the building to help firefighters get up uh, because they, could, they couldn't uh, get up the freight elevators that weren't working. So he was helping them up through a back uh, access that only he had the key for. He was literally pulling people out and carrying out people on wheelchairs right up until the time of the, the building destru- destruction. He was uh, sometimes dubbed the last man out. I don't think he was technically the last person out of the buildings, but he was certainly one of the last people pulled out of the rubble uh, that he was buried under as he was running out of the building at the time of its destruction. So he has been lauded as one of the heroes of 9-11 right since that day itself and has been awarded and has been to White House dinners and functions and uh, has been pictured with uh, President Bush and Senator Hillary Clinton and all of these people. But the problem for purveyors of the official 9-11 government uh, conspiracy theory is that his story actually not only doesn't match up with, but actually actively undermines the official story of 9-11, insofar as his testimony says that he experienced, along with several other people that he was with at the time, a very loud, very large explosion or loud noise of some sort that took place below them They were in the basement level of the North Tower at the time. There was some sort of explosion that took place below them that not only uh, scared them, but it it shook the uh, the building. It, it, It cracked the walls. The false ceiling fell down on top of them. People were screaming and in shock. And they, they were wondering what was happening. He was going to articulate that he believed uh, there was a boiler blew up or something underneath them. And then... So this must have been six or seven seconds, as he says, after this explosion, there's the thud that is the impact of the plane, a hundred stories or somewhere, 80 stories above them. So according to Rodriguez's story, there was an explosion that took place before, several seconds before, noticeably before the impact of the plane above them. And, uh, and that is essentially, it's a, it's a, a direct contradiction of what we're told about what took place that morning that is either edited out of um, the mainstream reports about Rodriguez and what he did or is, is otherwise sidestepped. They don't tend to uh, play up that side of the story. And as a result, Rodriguez has found himself becoming something of a 9-11 activist and whistleblower um, who can't really be ignored very well because, he, as I say, he has been featured so prominently as one of the heroes on that day. Well, what's also uh, fascinating is in the, the moments after that initial explosion, someone came running into his office. Uh, it, essentially, his skin was hanging off. And this was uh, Felipe David, uh, who I guess had come up from the basement. And, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't obviously up on the, uh, you know, the, one of the floors where the planes had impacted. He was down below. He came up after that first explosion. He had been burned so severely his skin was hanging off. That's right. Uh, Felipe David, and he was working for a company called Aramark. He was, as you say, in one of the sub-basement levels. There were six sub-basement levels that were basically for maintenance workers, contractors, uh, storage for for tenants of the building, etc. And he was in one of those sub-basement levels. He came up 
And as you say, uh, according to Rodriguez and what and the story he's told consistently since the day of 9-11, you can actually see I play in the documentary some of the footage of him being interviewed on 9-11 talking about this man coming out uh, of the elevator. His skin was literally hanging off of him, uh, part of his face hanging off. People were screaming in terror. And uh, as you say, this was Felipe David, who survived and was actually, you can watch when Rodriguez is reunited with Felipe David on camera. Uh, They have an on-camera reunion, uh, I believe some years after the event, but at any rate, some time after the event. Uh, So this is a story, again, it's a further corroboration of what Rodriguez has been saying since that day. And as you say, this person was in one of the sub-basement levels beneath Rodriguez, where he says the explosion came from before the plane hit the tower. So we have Rodriguez talking about this explosion in the basement. We have Felipe David, who is actually suffering burns as a result of this explosion in the basement. Um, But it's not just those two. There are hundreds and hundreds of documented cases of people, first responders and others, police, firefighters, talking about hearing explosions, and these have all been sort of documented. There's a repository for all of these. I, I believe it was compiled, was it uh, Graham McQueen from McMaster University here in, uh, in Ontario? That's right. Graham McQueen examined that testimony. It was collected by New York Fire Commissioner Thomas Von Essen uh, shortly after 9-11, who had the foresight to realize that the eyewitness accounts that the firefighters, the paramedics, the emergency medical technicians that responded that day, the eyewitness testimony they had was important and needed to be documented. So he ordered the collection of oral testimony from all of the first responders on that day. And so in all, 503 people contributed to that oral testimony, which is now available. 12,000 pages of oral testimony, uh, which interestingly was sealed from the public, and it took a court battle uh, and four years for that to finally be pried out from the New York Fire Department. But eventually that was pried out and made public. And Gray McQueen was one of the researchers who went in and decided to document, go through the 12,000 pages of the 503 different uh, testimonies and examine it for uh, for testimony about explosives on that day. And he found, found uh, I can't remember what the exact number was, but it was over 100 of the people that were uh, collected, of their, their testimony was collected, did testify to explosive events of some some form. And he was, uh, uh, you should actually read his paper, uh, which I do link up from the Journal of 9-11 Studies, where you can see his methodology. But he wasn't just talking about someone hearing a boom or something. He was talking about all sorts of different uh, presentations of explosives, including sight and sound and uh, and uh, uh, other types of testimony, some of which I, I feature in the documentary itself, some of the that was recorded on camera, some of the firemen uh, testifying, for example, that they were staging in the lobby area to go up to fight the fires because the plane had already hit when there was a secondary explosion and then a third explosion in the lobby that caused part of the lobby to collapse. They were talking about these explosions going on throughout this time. And this has been attempted to be explained away by the debunkers in a number of ways, one of which I think is is fairly laughable at, at uh, on its face, which is that the explosive event that Rodriguez testified to 
was not an explosion that was taking place beneath him before the plane collapsed. No, he must have gotten the timeline wrong. Obviously, the plane hit, and then the fuel uh, from the plane went down through the elevator shaft and actually exploded out in the lobby, which caused a big explosion in the lobby, which, it, 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 in fact, isn't even possible, given the way that the elevators were designed. There wasn't a straight down from the top floor to the bottom elevator shaft. There were different elevators you had to get off at a different level in, halfway through the building. So they were, they were designed, in fact, to stop the spread of fire exactly like what what supposedly took place that day so it doesn't even make sense the the way that the the debunkers try to um uh, explain away this evidence but they have tried to do so and uh and as i say uh gray mcqueen uh, has utterly demolished that by presenting hundreds of different cases of people talking about the explosions that were going on that morning uh, gonzalez uh or sorry rodriguez testified um for, I think, several hours, and none of that testimony was uh, part of the commission report, was it? No. In fact, uh, as William Rodriguez has pointed out, he was one of the people that actually got the 9-11 commission underway in the first place. People might not remember, it was over 400 days between 9-11 and the actual beginning of the commission's work. And that's a pretty remarkable fact when you consider it was only a matter of weeks, say, after Pearl Harbor before they started a commission into that. But it was over a year because, specifically, the Bush administration was not just dragging its heels, but actively ordering Congress to limit its investigation into the 9-11 attacks, which I, I think should raise some alarm bells, even amongst the most skeptical of the skeptics. But anyway, uh, Rodriguez uh, was one of the people that was instrumental in getting a commission in the first place. And then they did ask him to testify for that commission behind closed doors, off the record. It wasn't part of the open public hearings that were taking place. It was just in a government facility. And they, they uh, like a lot of the other interviews that took place for the commission, it wasn't part of the open public hearings. So he never know, knew what came of his testimony. He didn't know how it was going to be used. When the final report ultimately came out, of course, his story was nowhere to be found in there. They didn't make use of it whatsoever. So ultimately, they simply just ignored his story. Now, I want to uh, shift gears a little bit and, and talk about uh, another whistleblower, but this had to do with the, the uh, consulate in, in Jeddah, in Saudi Arabia, where uh, they were issuing visas, and, and it turns out that of the 19 supposed hijackers, they were, 14 of the 19 were issued visas at this one particular uh, consulate, and uh, visas to enter the United States. Tell me about the uh, the testimony of Michael Springman. Yes, this is a remarkable story. And I think it is important to note, as you did there, that these are the alleged or suspected hijackers. I, I certainly don't... Um, I, nothing has convinced me so far that the people that are confused, uh, accused of being hijackers by the FBI are were hijackers per se, or that these were the even the men that they were talking about. But at any rate, the official story is that of the 19 accused alleged hijackers... 15 of them got their uh, visas to enter the United States in Saudi Arabia, 14 of them at the same consulate, essentially the, the consulate in Jeddah, the U.S. consulate there, um, which is significant because the U.S. consulate in Jeddah is precisely where J. Michael Springman was serving as uh, a consular uh, officer in the late 1980s. Uh, in 1987, he had uh, passed the Foreign Service exam, went through an orientation program, and was assigned to the Jeddah Consulate in Saudi Arabia. 
And from the time that he arrived there, he started having these very strange experiences. In fact, even before he shipped out, he started hearing strange things about what was going on in Jeddah. When he got there, he had these experiences where he would be denying people visas because they didn't have any ties uh, to, to their own country. They didn't have any conceivable reason for going to the U.S. They couldn't say where they were going or why they were going or how they were getting the money to go there. He would deny their visas. And then he would find that uh, one of his uh, ranking officers would overturn that and issue the visa. And this happened not just once or twice, but this was a common occurrence for him. And he was wondering what was going on. Uh, eventually, he ultimately got reassigned to, to Germany and then eventually made his way back to Washington. It was in Washington, as he was still trying to figure out what had actually been happening in Jeddah, that he talked to uh, the journalist, Joseph Trento, who informed him that the Jeddah consulate was being used to ship Osama bin Laden's associates from Afghanistan to the U.S. for training at various facilities in the U.S. Now, that, that sounds like an outlandish story from the post-9-11 context, but in fact, in the 1980s, that made a lot of sense. This was back when Osama bin Laden was the CIA's golden boy in Afghanistan. Uh, read some of the, the, the commentary that was taking place. Even up to 1993, you have The Independent and Robert Fisk reporting that Osama bin Laden was a warrior on the road to peace, and uh, he was one of the, the brave people who had helped the anti-Soviet uh, insurgency in, in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Uh, so he was, uh, the, uh, the CIA was really cooperating with and, and openly uh, helping the interests of these Mujahideen holy warriors in Afghanistan which, of course, included Osama bin Laden and the people he was associated with. So Joseph Trento uh, informs Springman, no, you were part of this scam that they were doing, essentially to, to whitewash this and to, to give visas to these essentially terrorists, although at the time they were called freedom fighters, but to bring them into the U.S. for training and then bring them back to Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. And this made enough sense to Springman. And in fact, he even said, well, if they just told me that's what was happening, I probably would have supported it because, you know, it was the Cold War and we were against the Ruskies. You know, it all makes sense. But then this is the exact consular office that then a decade later ends up issuing 14 of the 19 alleged hijackers visas, which is a pretty important part of the story. And in fact, one of the even crazier parts, 12 of those visas were issued by one singular consular officer. Uh, in fact, she didn't just issue 12, she issued 18 visas, uh, some of them multiple times to some of these uh, people. And uh, I'm not sure of every single one, but every one that I looked into anyway of these visa requests by these alleged hijackers were faulty and should not have been granted in the first place. There were missing parts just, of... It bears repeating. It bears repeating. So 12 of the, 12 of the 14 uh, hijackers, alleged hijackers, uh, supposedly involved in 9-11. They were issued visas by this one employee at the consulate, this Shana Steinger. That's that's correct. Uh, and in fact, you can go into the some of the records from the 9-11 Commission that have been released online. There's uh, there's some of those records up on Scribd where they interviewed Shana Steinger. They black out her name, but it's identifiable as her, where they talk to her about this. And basically, they come to the conclusion, oh, there's there's nothing untoward about this. It's just it's just the way that it happened. And and there was there was some pressure, obviously, to uh, to issue visas at that time because of the relations between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. And that would have contributed to the fact that these people were basically rubber stamped, even though their applications were seriously lacking, shall we say, some of them even incomplete applications, but they were still rubber stamped by uh, Shana Steinger. Well, the what is the chain of command then? Who would have ordered Steinger to approve 
visas for these terrorists. Well, this is where things become murky because, of course, they become off-the-record type uh, transactions, exactly as what Springman was experiencing at his time there. He was overridden by his superiors, uh, sometimes... Uh, explicitly so. Sometimes he only found out through other people what had happened. Uh, so there was no, obviously no paper trail that was being less left of who was doing what. And uh, in fact, the papers that Springman did collect about what the the issues, the visas that he had issued that had been overturned, denied that had been overturned and issued, uh, he had been collecting that in a file, which he did leave in Jeddah for the next person uh, when he left the office. And Ultimately, although he's tried to FOIA it, they say those records were destroyed as part of routine record keeping. So we'll never know exactly who those visas were issued to and who were issued by. Presumably the exact same thing has happened with regards to 9-11. In fact, probably even more so stringently. As we know, a lot of the records pertaining to 9-11 have been destroyed as part of routine record keeping. Like, for example, the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, largest investigation ever, their investigation into the, the insider trading that took place before 9-11, uh, was destroyed as part of their routine record keeping. So we'll never know, you know the ultimate details of that. But uh, those are the types of things that happen with, with regards to 9-11. All right, uh, when we come back, we'll open up the phone lines, take questions and comments for James Corbett, 9-11 whistleblowers. And uh, here are the Moody Blues taking us into the break with Ride My Seesaw on Coast to Coast AM. Welcome back to Coast to Coast AM. And we're coming to you live from Coast Toronto, Canada affiliate, In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Uh, James Corbett is my guest, and we're talking about his uh, documentary, 9-11 Whistleblowers. Uh, it took President Bush uh, something like 440 days, I think, to actually uh, finally call for an official inquiry into 9-11. And he appointed Henry Kissinger uh, to chair the commission, but he resigned very, very quickly. What happened, James? Well, essentially, no one believed that uh, Henry Kissinger was going to really get to the bottom of 9-11. In fact, as I point out, the, even the New York Times, a uh, pretty mainstream newspaper, I think we can all agree, speculated at the time that Bush's appointment of Henry Kissinger as the chair of the 9-11 Commission showed that they didn't want to investigate 9-11. They wanted to actually contain that investigation. So... And so it was that the 9-11 victims' family members who had been instrumental in, in getting the commission uh, formed in the first place, including some of the, uh, the 9-11 widows, uh, got to engage uh, Henry Kissinger in a conversation in his office where they were asking him some uncomfortable questions, uh, including the very uncomfortable and pointed question, would you have any Saudi American clients that you would like to tell us about? All but naming, of course, the Bin Laden family as one of the clients of Henry Kissinger's personal consulting slash lawyer firm. And when he heard that question, he, quote unquote, uh, nearly fell off his couch. <laughs> and the very next day, he stepped down from that position. So I think, I think the, uh, the, the fix was in from the very beginning with regards to the 9-11 Commission, and the appointment of Henry Kissinger was just one sign of that. Let's say hi to Arnie in Granite Bay, California. Good morning, Arnie. Welcome to Coast to Coast AM. Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, great show, and kudos to you for taking this issue on. I am amazed uh, from time to time the issues Coast to Coast speaks about on a on a nationwide broadcast show where you can't hear it anywhere else. You know, and I don't. I'd be real curious on the blowback you get on this kind of thing. And the Corbett Report, I watch you a lot. I 
really appreciate your intellectual views and what you've done, particularly on the Epstein thing, as well as the 9-11. You doggedly uh, followed this. <clears throat> now, I'm an engineer. Uh, I am in the um, Architects and Engineers. I recently signed the petition and everything. And um, I got a, com a couple comments um, and one theory on why and how Building 7 was attacked. Uh, the first thing is on engineering, um, the structural uh, uh, design of a building. <clears throat> and I graduated. I'm a retired engineer. I graduated in 73, but I was in the science and vogue at that time around the construction, or at least I had the teaching methods uh, were given to me on building construction. One of the things was a safety factor was applied to beams uh, that structurally supported the building, uh, any building, <clears throat> as well as uh, a safety factor was incorporated after all the potential loads were considered. And that includes, does not mean just the, the loads of the weight and everything, but other extraneous factors like a hurricane, a plane crashing in or whatever, all those things were incorporated. And then a safety factor on top of that would be applied. It could be as low as 1.25, which is 25% stronger. It could be 1.5, 1.75. But it always had a safety factor, even above anything that could be considered. Now, I say all that because the steel, and I've researched this, the steel in um, uh, such a large building as the uh, the Twin Towers and Building 7 were, were uh, because of the enormity of the project, was uh, spot-tested. And what, the way they do that was with strain gauges. Uh, steel has a, um, a load compression, it has tension, it has torsion. Well, they have strain gauges that can micro-test uh, the steel to make sure it conforms to the minimum safety factor that the engineers specify. That does not mean that, that every piece of steel is at exact that point. It means it's a minimum. Some steel surpassed that strength, and it would pass as well. So and this comes into the dilemma of making a building collapse in its own footprint, a demolition engineer. This is a different topic, but this is a how to bring a building down in its own footprint. You have steel beams that are some are stronger even than the minimum strong, uh, safety factor, so you have to have cutting charges that cut all the beams at once so that you don't get an asymmetrical fall because what would happen in a pancake fall, as they prescribed originally, would be the building would start to fall. One of the beams would be a little stronger even than the others, and it, the, the building would start to tip, and it would just tip over. It would fall over. This is a dilemma of a demolition engineer. Demolition engineer has to bring it down uniformly, and the cutting charges have to be applied uniformly. <clears throat> so it's, it's a feat. It's a real engineering feat. Uh, they're timed in milliseconds. They're not timed in seconds or milliseconds. Uh, to have the charges come down, the building go into its footprint. That's all three buildings. Now, um, on the comments on the on the explosions that uh, occurred before the actual collapse of the buildings, I I have a question on that because it doesn't it doesn't fit in with a demolition because once you start applying demolition charges and weakening the building, you don't start and stop. Once you start uh, weakening a building, you go through with the whole thing. The charges go immediately, and they go all the way through. Otherwise, you run the risk of having a, a premature collapse of the building. So I don't know about the explosions. That sounds a little peculiar. I don't know. I don't understand that, how that would fit in with a demolition. The Building 7, <clears throat> why that was a target, I have a theory that that plane that crashed in Pennsylvania was meant for that building. That was one of the primary targets, as well as 
building uh, the trade towers because of the Enron investigation. That plane was supposed to crash into that building and make it seem like all the buildings crashed because the plane crashed. That's all I got to say. All right, and you said a lot, Arnie, and we thank you for it. Uh, some interesting uh, information there. All right, James, do you want to uh, weigh in on any of that? Yes, well, uh, obviously when it comes to what what did take place, it, a lot of it is speculative because we're dealing with things that uh, that we can't have direct access to because unfortunately we don't have the type of investigation, uh, at least at our fingertips, that could uh, bring people before a jury and, and uh, testify, etc. But uh, it, it, it does deserve to at least be put in there. That's, it is speculation, but if Flight 93, for example, that obviously went down outside in Pennsylvania and how did it really go down is another question entirely. But at any rate, it went down in Pennsylvania. If it was intended for World Trade Center Building 7, then that might have been the reason why Building 7 ultimately went down is because the perpetrators of 9-11 had expected that there would be a, another plane impact that would uh, cover the, the fall of that building. And if that were the case, then it may have been that the explosions that Jennings was testifying to early in the morning were in fact part of what was supposed to be the demolition of World Trade Center 7 that didn't go uh, according to plan for whatever reason. As as we know, uh, demolitions often do not go according to plan and can be uh, done in, uh, have, have to be done in stages, done again because it didn't, didn't collapse the way that they had predicted it was going to collapse. It could have been a faulty explosion that didn't quite trigger the way they thought that ultimately they had to complete the job at 5.20 in the afternoon, which is another part of the mystery that this didn't collapse in the morning, it collapsed several hours later uh, that, again, not related to a building uh, plane impact. So, again, there's layers of speculation going on here, but it certainly could line up with a story like that, that there were explosions taking place in the morning that were designed to take the building down, but in fact failed and had to be uh, completed later in the afternoon. All right. Now, I want to, while time permits, I want you to comment on 9-11 Commissioner Bob Carey, uh, who is asked uh, about the investigation, and he says something very interesting uh, that I don't believe anyone has ever followed up with him on. What did he say? So this comes in a conversation. He, it's uh, being recorded by some independent media, obviously, not a mainstream station. And they're they're talking uh, informally after uh, a speech that he had made. And they're, they're talking about, do you support a criminal investigation into 9-11? And he says, oh, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I do support a permanent commission to examine not just that, but lots of other things in this area. And then they get into a conversation about that, and he says, well, we have to investigate this to save our country. And so Kerry, who, again, Bob Kerry, one of the 9-11 commissioners, one of the people on the 9-11 commission that de- delivered the final report that is still seen as the Bible of the official government conspiracy theory of 9-11, said, well, if that's the condition upon which we're going to be saving our country, uh, the problem is it's a 30-year-old conspiracy. And so the person who's questioning him, make sure, no, I'm, I'm talking about 9-11. And Kerry confirms, that's what I'm talking about. And then he has to get rushed away. And that's, that's the end of the conversation. So he specifically referred to 9-11 as a 30-year-old conspiracy and then had to get rushed away by his staff or whatever. Well, very interesting. As if it had been 30 years as if it had been, been planned 
30 years in advance. That's so that one was, interpretation of what he said, but unfortunately we'll never know really what he meant by that because that remarkable statement was never followed up on in any uh, interview that he's ever given since that time that I know of anyway. Uh, one possible interpretation, that, that recording, that, that, uh, that conversation was being recorded in 2009, so perhaps the 30-year referred back to 1979, which would have been the beginning of Operation Cyclone, which was at that time a classified U.S. government uh, plan to essentially draw the Soviets into Afghanistan to start the Afghan war because they knew that would deplete the resources of the, the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, and that obviously gave rise to people like Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda, al-Qaeda. So there, there is that implication there that, that he might have been referring to that. But again, we don't really know what he meant because, again, it was just this offhand comment and then he's whisked away. And unfortunately, no one has ever bothered to follow up with him about a remarkable statement like that. Uh, let's say hi to Thomas in La Jolla, California, on the wildcard line. Thomas, good morning. Hi, Richard. Thank you for taking my call. And James Corbett, I look forward to viewing your documentary. Great research, by the way, and interviews. My question, okay, comment and a question. The day, be, okay, the day after 9-1-1, on September 12, 2001, there were high-definition aerial photographs taken of the entire World Trade Center complex from directly overhead, over the complex, aerial views. And you can see in these photographs, which are widely available on the Internet, you can Google them, and um, you can see Tower 1, Tower 2, Building 7, collapsed into their footprints, so to speak. But when you look at the aerial photographs of the other buildings, they sustained massive, not minor, but massive structural damage. For example, Building 3 looks like there's a huge hole punched into the center of the building, just leaving the outer skeletal infrastructure, so to speak. Building 4 was very damaged, Building 1, etc. And it looks like the entire complex, well, you view the photographs, it looks like there was a big aerial bombing. I'm not saying that that happened. But was there any whistleblower and or other testimony on the other buildings? What happened to them? Why did they sustain massive damage. We're not talking jet fuel, you know, charring of the building or a plane, you know, jet engine crashing into the building or whatever, but like Building 3, Building 4, Building 1 sustained massive structural damage, which you can see examined in the overhead photographs that were taken on September 12, 2001. So I was curious. Any testimony whatsoever on these structural damages to the other buildings in the Trade Center complex? Thomas, thanks for the call. Wouldn't, that, wouldn't they have been damaged by the debris of the other right. towers? Right, yeah, that, that was what I was going to say. The, of course, the official debunking story would be, well, it was the, the, the collapse, as they would call it, of the Twin Towers uh, damaged not only WTC7, but the other buildings in the area would be the official explanation. I think people should look at those photographs for themselves and see if they think that that is a likely explanation for the, the cause of that damage. 
as regards to explicit testimony uh, of people in the buildings itself, I'm not I'm not deeply versed on that. I'm sure there are stories there that are worth digging into. And part of what I do and part of the reason that I do it is to draw attention to this so that there would be more people who would be out there looking into this and saying, hey, there's something really, really wrong with this. And I didn't know this and I didn't know this. What else can we investigate? So if nothing else, I hope my work actually does prompt people to go out there and do more investigation in that uh, regard, because I unfortunately can't do everything. But uh, I, certainly there were events taking place around Ground Zero that morning that I think are not uh, demonstrably not explained. And there have been a lot of explanations that have been preferred for various parts of the damage that we see and what have you. And I don't get into the, the choosing a theory game because so much of it is speculative. I think the really important work is trying to get a real, actual investigation with subpoena power and with the ability to bring people uh, before uh, a jury and to testify on the record under oath we can start getting to the bottom of this mess. But uh, unfortunately, there's so much speculation and speculation upon speculation at this point that it's difficult to to come to an understanding. But please, I, I urge people to go and look at that type of documentary evidence for themselves, because that's the only way we're going to really make progress on this. Let me try and squeeze Perry in here very quickly from Lompoc, California, on the wildcard line. Perry, your question. Are you there, Perry? Perry going once. Oh, we lost Perry. All right, we just got a, a couple of minutes here. So, um, what, I mean, we have this this um, uh, district attorney from the the Southern District in New York, Jeffrey uh, Berman, who has uh, been charged with impaneling a, a grand jury, and he's been given some evidence by the Lawyers Committee for 9/11. What are the chances do you think that we'll get finally a real investigation? Well, I I dislike this question because I dislike the answer. Uh, I uh, let's just say I'm not holding my breath and patiently waiting for this to result in the ultimate 9/11 truth and justice. Uh, obviously, this has been effectively suppressed and covered up for 18 years, so it's uh, asking a lot to believe that this is going to be the investigation that breaks open the uh, the dam and brings all of the the truth to light. Having said that, I think it's important not to simply become naysayers who are so jaded that we will never try to at attempt anything to try to get the truth out about these events. I think if absolutely nothing else, something like a 9-11 grand jury uh, is effective in getting the information out to the public. Uh, for example, people can visit the website of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry and look at the, the evidence that they presented that is now being presented to that special grand jury, uh, evidence of explosions and evidence uh, that undermines the official story of 9-11. That is a very effective way of getting that information out to more people. Ultimately, I, I think that this is in the hands of the people at large, more so than it is in any particular government investigative body to investigate itself. And when public opinion meets, meets that critical mass, where enough people are informed and irate about the demonstrable cover-up and lies that have been going on for 18 years, I think at that point we will start to achieve some sort of progress towards real justice, but probably not until that point. James, once again, how do people watch 9-11 whistle, whistleblowers? They can go to CorbettReport.com, C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. It's right up there on the front page, and uh, there's a transcript. There's links to various uh, uh, social media f formats that you can watch it in, the MP3 audio. I try to put it out there in every format possible. It's completely 100% for free, and I hope people will use it as a resource uh, to start their own research and investigation and p pass around to others. That's what it's there for. 
James, thanks so much for this. Thank you very much for having me on. For George Norrie, George Knapp, Lisa Lyons, Stephanie Smith, Tom Danheiser, Dan Galanti, Anna Ramirez, Donna Walker, Chris Burroughs, and Lex Lonehood. And here in Toronto, Mike Ben Dixon and Patrick O'Neill, I'm Richard Serrett. Thank you for your ears and your voices, your beautiful voices. Until next time, so long for now. <laughs>